Encounter Church, how are you doing? You guys, you know what I see other than some smiling eyes? I actually see smiling faces. It's amazing. You guys look beautiful. It's so good to see people's faces. My goodness. I hope that you're having a good week. Uh, my name is Joe. If we haven't met, I am the location pastor at our soon-to-be-opening location in Fulton Heights. Yeah. Oh, man. You're excited, too. That's great. We're going to be opening on September 12th in Fulton Heights, just a block away from Aquinas College, if you're uh, familiar with that area. And, man, I'm so excited about it. And today we are continuing in week two of a series on the book of Philippians. If you have a Bible or a phone, you can open that. We're going to be in chapter two. If you don't have either of those, that's okay. We've got a screen in the back, and that will have the scriptures on there. And as we begin, I would love to talk about t-shirts just for a little bit. Uh, T-shirts, everybody loves t-shirts. I see several of you wearing them right now. T-shirts are the hamburger of the fashion world. Everybody makes a t-shirt. And when you're shopping for t-shirts, there's a couple things that I want to talk about as we look at the idea of on brand. But what I love is that t-shirts can bring people together. I, I love seeing when you're out in public and someone's got like a sports team on their shirt or a band or like a snarky little saying, seeing people connect over shirts. And I asked the Encounter staff to send me their favorite custom shirt, and this is what they sent. Dirk, lead pastor, he sent this. Need an ark? I know a guy. Yeah. That tells you, that's why he took a couple weeks off after he sent that. Yeah. Uh, Megan, who is our kids director, she sent this. Something about Disney and dogs. She loves both of those things. Uh, Zach, our worship leader, sent this. I think that's a musical joke. I'm not sure. And then Paula works with groups. She sent this. Drink coffee, do stupid things faster and with more energy, says the coffee lovers in the room. And I, I, honestly, I'm a little more basic when it comes to shirts. I don't really wear shirts with, like, stuff on them. I buy my shirts from a company called Everlane online. And the reason I do that is because they don't have any logos or brands, and I know where the shirts are made. But here's the thing. When you buy things like T-shirts, you're navigating a couple different factors, and there's usually three categories that you're choosing from. The first is called a commodity brand. Here's a picture of a T-shirt that is a commodity brand. This is a Hanes T-shirt. Anybody familiar with the Hanes? Yes, yeah. $4.99. You can get a T-shirt for $4.99. And usually you buy this shirt at a place with the word Mart on the end of it. And it comes in a package of several. And I know what some of you are thinking, like $4.99 for a t-shirt, really, that is too much. What, am I going to wear this to my wedding? But commodity brands are basically just the cheapest way to check the box. You get a cheap, nice, dependable shirt. Commodity brand, Hanes. Next is a quality brand. Uh, this is a shirt from Patagonia. This shirt rings in at $29.99. Patagonia Company, anyone familiar with that place? Yeah quality stuff. This is a durable quality poly cotton blend. I don't know what that means, but you have to pay 30 bucks for it. Patagonia is an example, or like Levi's, something like that, an example of a quality brand. You're going to pay a little bit more, and you're hoping for quality. The third we're going to talk about this is a luxury brand, a luxury brand. This is a picture of a t-shirt from a company called Prada. Is anyone familiar with that brand? Yes, I can see a couple, of, a couple of you are wearing this shirt right now. 
Yeah, I'm wearing this under my sweatshirt. I just don't want to flaunt it. Uh, this shirt online is uh, $1,200, $1,200. I know, $1,200. Do you know what this shirt is made out of, though? Yeah, it's just made out of cotton. It's just cotton, just like the other ones. It's got $1,200. Um, there comes a time, guys, when you're no longer paying for a product. You're paying for something so much more. You're paying for status. And categories like T-shirts, fashion, automobiles, travel, food, coffee, all of these categories kind of apply the same way, commodity, quality, or luxury. And I'm not here to argue like the difference between brands or values, but I am saying that we navigate all sorts of different factors when we make purchases like this. And brands know that it's true, and they capitalize on it as you would expect that they would, and they desire to capture our hope for exclusivity. One writer says this when he's talking about luxury brands or some companies call them aspirational brands. He says, luxury brand, it's not about different degrees of functionality, but an inward reflection on the gap between who I am and who that brand could help me become. That's an interesting, interesting statement. And the psychology behind all this is, is fascinating to me. And I think companies are basically reinforcing this internal desire that all of us have to elevate ourselves, to be seen by others as valuable or successful or important. And I think if we're honest, sometimes it's not just that we're trying to keep up with our neighbors or the people around us, I think sometimes, if we're honest, we're, we're actually trying to outdo them. We want to be noticed and appreciated for sure, but I also want to be better. I have this thing in me that I want to be superior. We want the errs. We don't want just, just want to be rich. We want to be richer. We want to sometimes be smarter or funnier or happier, more successfuler, which is not a sentence. And that desire to elevate ourselves, I think in response to that, Paul talks to the church in Philippi, and he says this in verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. In your relationships with one another, how we interact together, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now, this verse begins one of the most popular sections of Scripture in the Bible. And it was most likely a hymn that was either written by Paul, who wrote this, or it was common in the early church, and Paul is quoting it to the readers. And I would encourage you to familiarize yourself with this scripture passage. For moment, maybe memorize it, man. For moments where you find yourself discouraged or wrestling with doubt or struggle, this can be an incredibly encouraging passage of scripture. And we're gonna talk about why. But in order for us to really understand the significance of this idea of in your relationships to one another, we have to go back a little bit. I want to talk about the origin stories of the church. Now, last week we talked about Philippi being a pretty affluent and influential area. And there were gold mines around, so the people had quite a bit of money. The religious climate was really, really interesting. 
But what we found is that Paul, this is one of his first stops in Europe, and he goes to preach the gospel, right? And he meets three individuals, and this story is actually recorded in Acts 16. If you want extra credit or if you want to read, it's a fascinating story. And in Acts 16, Paul goes with Silas and a couple other missionaries to Philippi, and here's what he finds. The first person he runs into is a lady named Lydia. Remember Lydia? Can you guys say Lydia? There we go, Lydia. Lydia is gathering with a group of women outside of the city. She was a Jewish believer, but there was no formal Jewish synagogue or anything like that in Philippi. So these folks gathered together on Saturday to pray. Paul goes, he meets with these women and begins talking and praying with them. And eventually Lydia becomes a Christ follower. Paul tells her about his dramatic conversion in the way of Jesus Christ. And she says, that is fascinating. She gives her life to Jesus. Lydia was essentially a businesswoman. She sold luxury goods. She basically sold Prada t-shirts to anyone who would buy them. And she was a self-made woman, an entrepreneur, a leader, a high-capacity volunteer. Eventually, her whole family comes to Christ, and over time, the church, this group of Christ followers, begins to meet in her home. That is Lydia. She's the first person that Paul connects with. The second person that's mentioned in Acts chapter 16 is, they call her the, the former slave girl. This is an interesting story. This girl, she was plagued by what the Bible calls an evil spirit or a presence of a demon. Obviously a terrible thing. We're not sure exactly what happened in her past, but we know that the presence of that evil spirit has given her the ability to tell the future. And in some mysterious circumstances that we're unsure of, she is placed into slavery and owned by a group of people. And they monetize her ability to tell the future by doing like fortune-telling stands. And, and these owners, these slave owners, make an incredible amount of money profiting off of her ability and her pain through the demon to tell the future. It's probably like a trafficking situation, very similar to that. What's happening is these Christians are meeting Lydia and her friends and family this girl begins to harass and heckle these people that are meeting outside to pray. And in Acts 16 says that Paul got so annoyed with this heckling that at one point he looks over and says, in the name of Jesus, I command these demons to flee. And immediately the demons are gone. She experiences an incredible amount of freedom. And she's, her life is changed in a second. But what's gone with the demons is also the ability to tell the future. But the girl is overjoyed. She starts following the church and following Jesus. But there's a group of people that are very upset. Who do you think it is? The slave owners who are capitalizing on her ability to tell the future. They've lost their income. They've lost their source of finance. So they take Paul and Silas to court, and they're immediately thrown into jail. So first we've got Lydia, we have the ex-slave girl, and we meet the third character that starts this uh, church in Philippi, and he is the jailer. While they're in jail miraculous thing happens. There's an earthquake, and the doors of the prison are thrown open. The jailer rushes in to see what he expects is that Paul and Silas have escaped, taken advantage of the open jail, but they have not. The jailer is so surprised by their character and their integrity, he begins to talk to them. He becomes a Christ follower with his whole family. It's awesome. So we have Lydia. We have the ex-slave girl. 
and we have the jailer. And these are the individuals the Philippian church starts with. It's not an organization. It's not a nonprofit. It's not even a movement. It's just, it's just people. It's just individuals. It's high-capacity Lydia. It's the bend through it all and recovering slave girl. And it's the rough-around-the-edges ex-military jailer and their families together following Jesus. And I think it's worth noting that that is what this church and the global church is today as well. It's not an organization. It's not an institution. It's not even a movement. At its best, it's you and it's me following Jesus. Jesus. And anything that tries to make it more than that and anything that tries to make it less than that is missing the main idea. The wealthy, high-profile, the broken and restored, the middle-class and brash, this is the people that Jesus brings together. The good news is good news for all of these folks with their past and with their pain. They each look to Jesus, they each find hope in him, and every knee will bow and every tongue confess at the name of Jesus. This is for the Lydia's. This is for the ones who seem to have it all together. The iron pressed and dry cleaned proper ones who pay their bills and have a savings account. The people that know how to interact socially, who have gardeners and house cleaners. This is for the Lydia's and every knee will bow. This is also for the ex-slave girls for the ones who have a painful past and are trying to keep up, those who have been taken advantage of, who have lost their way, and who have a hard time making eye contact, those who keep a distance, and for those who have scars and they know it and are desperate, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And this is also for the jailers, for the reserved and duty-bound, the ex-military, for the Government workers for the wake up early and work hard, for the push through the pain and no time for small talk or time wasting, for the ones who will work hard till they die, and maybe have even stopped dreaming that hope holds more for them. Every knee will bow. It is beautiful what Jesus can do. It is beautiful to believe that our church is the same way. And yet, think about the potential for division here. Think about the opportunities for issues to come up between this group of people. Matt Chandler, pastor, in his book on Philippians, points out that God has unified a diverse group with very different social, cultural, economic, and political points of view. And Paul is leading all of them together towards maturity in Christ. But don't you think, don't you think over time as the church began to grow and it became successful that there was opportunity there for Lydia to look and go, it's working. This thing, this thing that I've built, this thing that I'm helping to fund, don't you think there's some opportunity for pride there along the way? Or for the, for the former slave girl, man, think about what she has been through. 
And don't you think over time the possibility of relationship struggles would come into play? Don't you think that there's a, a possibility that she had trouble trusting people, particularly men? And that the, the jailer, that maybe God had to work to soften his heart. That there were times when perhaps he treated people like a jailer would treat people. That the opportunity for division is incredible. And it's with this group of people. It's with this group. That Paul says, in your relationships with one another, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. I love that. When Paul uses the word mindset, he's using a Greek word called phreneo. Can you say phreneo? Phreneo. Uh, I was talking to Zach about this this week, and he thought it sounded Italian. He was like, it sounds like an Olive Garden entree, but it's not. Zach. Uh, it's not. The word means to exercise the mind, to have an understanding, a habit of thought expressed in action. We translate it in English to be like-minded or to imitate. Interestingly, Paul uses this word, this idea of mindset, about 22 times in his letters to all of the early churches. Half of the time, he's using it to, Philipp to the Philippians. 11 times he mentions this, and this is why it's significant for Paul. Paul doesn't want us to forget that our thinking matters significantly, that our thinking shapes our attitudes and our actions, and, the, and it impacts the ways we interact with other people. Phreneo. It's the same word that's used in the gospel account in the interaction between Peter and Jesus. Jesus said some things about his future that Peter disagrees with. And you've got to love the confidence in anyone who's like, Jesus, I think that you're wrong. Peter calls out Jesus and says, no, I don't want it to happen that way. And this is what Jesus says. He says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me with your evil thinking. And he says, you do not have the phreneo. Jesus tells Peter, you don't have the phreneo. You do not have in mind the things of God. So Paul is mentoring this early church from afar And he's hoping that these folks would have the mindset of Christ, that they would have the thoughts and cares and concerns and instincts and opinions of God in the way that they interact with one another. And why is this important to Paul? But, but why is it important to us? Because we... Encounter Church, Global Modern Church. We have Lydia's in our church, and I'm grateful for that. We have high capacity, entrepreneurial, incredible people who have gifts of leadership that are dynamic, and they've come to Jesus and been saved, and I'm grateful for that. We also have ex-slaves in our ministry, people that have been through incredibly difficult things on the road to recovery who's whose lives Jesus has altered forever. And I am so grateful for that. We also have jailers. 
We also have insurance agents and recruiters and pastors and lawyers and workers. We are the church of Christ who have found new life in Jesus with our gifts and our strengths and our struggles and our pain and our issues and our ability to manipulate and our selfishness. And Jesus is the hope for us all. Amen. And Paul continues to back up his case about Jesus shaping the way we interact in this next section of verses. Verse 6. Talking about Jesus, Paul says this. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he he did what? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. A couple observations about the scripture. The idea of he made himself nothing. Writer Dallas Willard says that Jesus abandoned himself to the status of voluntary slave to the point of dying for others. Jesus abandoned himself to the status of voluntary slave to the point of dying for others. Jesus willingly put aside his role as God for us. The idea of making yourself nothing or the emptying here includes the role and the status of deity, but not the attributes or nature of God. It means he took a humble role, but he did not forfeit his divinity. Jesus was not 100% man. He wasn't 50-50 when he came to earth. Matthew 1.23, there's Christmas passages called Jesus the Emmanuel, the God with us. He was fully God and fully man, and this is why this is important. Jonah chapter 2 says that salvation comes only from the Lord. No matter how strong a man or woman might be, None of us have the ability to carry our penalty and the weight of human sin. Only God can bear the penalty of our sin and our shame and our brokenness. Only Jesus. In writing to Timothy, Paul later says, in 1 Timothy 2.5, he says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. Paul shows us that only Jesus can be fully God and fully man, and only he can mediate for humanity. This means that Jesus brings us back to God, and he can reveal most clearly God to us. He mediates on our behalf. He does something that no man can do. He brings us in right standing with God, and he also reveals the ways of God to us through the Holy Spirit. Jesus is fully God. And as fully God, he is the perfect Savior. Jesus is the perfect Savior. Jesus has done what none of us could do by making a way for us to God. And as man, he was the perfect example, doing what no one could do and giving us an example to follow. So Paul challenges us to have the mindset or to imitate Christ. 
as that perfect example to imitate Christ by putting others before ourselves. When we imitate Christ, we elevate others. When we imitate Jesus Christ, we elevate others. We serve others. We, are, we live humbly, which means we have right thinking about ourselves. We don't think about ourselves more higher than we should, and we don't think about ourselves more lowly than we should. We have right thinking about ourselves, and we put others ahead of ourselves. But when we imitate Christ, we can't imitate what we do not know. We can't imitate Christ if we are unfamiliar with him. We cannot imitate what we are not familiar with ourselves. Uh, my son Theo, our middle son, he's eight years old, and he, he does a pretty killer impression of me. It's pretty good. You know, honestly, most of the time it's sarcastic and bordering on complete disrespectful, but it's so spot on, like I can't argue with it because he's got the mannerisms, he uses his hands way too much. He, he's got the mannerisms down at, at just unexplainable times. His voice goes really high. And it, it's me. He's got it. But if I were to ask him to do an impression of like Ronald Reagan or like Shaq, he, he has no idea who those people are. He would struggle quite a bit because he's not familiar with those people. Those people are not in our house a lot, usually asking him to clean up his clothes. We can only imitate what we are familiar with. And the invitation here is certainly to elevate other people, to, to humbly serve the way we interact, right? But if it's just us trying harder, we've, we've all tried that. That doesn't work, or it doesn't work for very long. So Paul invites us to imitate, to follow the example of the perfect Savior and the perfect example. And here's a little glimpse of how Jesus set an example for us. In Jesus' final hours, before he was betrayed, he was praying in a garden at night. He went there with his disciples, but his disciples were tired. They fell asleep. And think of the anguish that Jesus was experiencing, knowing what was going to come in just a few short hours. The Bible story says that Jesus was so overwhelmed with emotion that he was sweating drops of blood thinking about what was ahead. And he prays. He prays honestly. He prays candidly to, to his father. He spends time praying for the disciples who would also face trouble in the upcoming hours and days and months. And this is what he continues to pray in John chapter 17. My prayer is not for them alone. Not alone for the disciples, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. As Jesus carried the weight of his final hours and the struggle and pain that those hours represented, he took time to pray for you. In Jesus' final hours on earth, you were on his mind. That is the example that he set. That is the love that he had that through the corridors of time he prayed for you as he carried a wooden cross to a hill, as he was mocked 
and beaten and betrayed, you were on his mind. That is the love that we seek. That is the love that we desire to imitate and become familiar with. When we imitate Christ, we elevate others. Paul continues, and this is what he says. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess on heaven and on earth and under the earth, every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's say that again together. Would you stand and say it with me? Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Amen.